You're listening to Utah Lake Facts, Fiction, and Fun. Hello, and welcome back to the Utah Lake Facts, Fiction, and Fun podcast. I'm your host, Sam Brager, Outreach Coordinator for the Utah Lake Commission, and this is episode number eight. Today, we are meeting with Mike Mills, and we are working both remotely at the moment, so we're doing this over Skype for the first time for the podcast. So uh, if there's any uh, technical issues, we'll try and address those, but... We're happy to have uh, Mike Mills, who is the coordinator for the June Sucker Recovery Implementation Program. And he is going to talk with us today about the endangered species June Sucker. And I know one of the bits he's going to hit on is that hopefully it's not going to be endangered anymore. That's something that's in the works right now. So, Mike, please, if you would, uh, give us an an introduction on on who you are and, and what your agency works on. And then let's get started. Yeah, um, thank you, Sam. It's it's exciting to be here and honored to be able to be one of the guests on this Utah Lake podcast. Um, I work for a conglomeration of agencies. Um, there are seven different agencies that all work together to make up the June Sucker Recovery Implementation Program, and it's a mouthful to say, and so a lot of times we just call it the June Sucker Program. But basically, we all have a tie to water development, water deliveries, and basically water use along the Wasatch Front. And so as agencies, we're very interested in maintaining access to water. We don't want anything to get in the way of us being able to deliver water to all of our customers. And endangered species, June sucker, they have the potential to maybe cause some potential conflicts. And we started clear back in 1998. We were finally official in 2002, but basically this program serves as compliance with the Endangered Species Act for June sucker for water projects. So in a nutshell, we exist in order to progress June sucker towards recovery so that we can continue to make water deliveries as we always have and as we've always planned. And so when everybody out there when they turn on their tap water comes out that that's really our goal and early on there were a lot of conflicts with june sucker and water use and now we're to the point where i don't think anyone even thinks twice about it and we really focus on doing awesome things for utah lake that not only benefit the june sucker but benefit everybody that relies on utah lake every species everything that uses utah lake benefits from the projects that we do and that's kind of why we exist and um it's exciting so that's really cool mike and and i'm glad you started off by explaining that that it really has to do with water usage because i don't think a lot of people understand um the way you phrased it that this is compliance in order to continue to provide water which we all need here in Utah Valley and across the state, really. So thank you for that great introduction. I'm excited to hear what you got to share today. Yeah, um, like I said, it's exciting to be here. Um, As you mentioned in the introduction, we got some potentially good news from the Fish and Wildlife Service, which is the federal agency that oversees the Endangered Species Act. Back in November, it was actually right before Thanksgiving, they announced that they were releasing a rule um, that would change the status of June sucker from endangered to threatened. And for us, that's a pretty huge deal because it, it very rarely happens. You just don't hear about a fish that's been endangered for so long 
moving to threatened status, meaning that its status is getting better, that it's moving away from extinction and back towards um, a healthy population. Sure. And, I think you mentioned yeah. to me it's only happened, what, four times before? That That is correct. So June sucker would be the fifth um, fish species to go through this process. So it, it's exciting. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So with that rule, right now it's it's a proposed rule. It came out, like I mentioned, back around Thanksgiving. Um, they went through a comment period, and that wrapped up the end of January. And so now they're analyzing the comments. They also have to have a few scientists review the rule and all the science behind June Sucker Recovery. They, they call that process peer review, and that's going on right now. Once it makes it through all these steps and it has to go through kind of the the gamut of federal approvals, um, back to the regional office in Denver, then back to the headquarters office back in Washington, D.C. Um, but eventually, and we're, we're pretty confident that the Fish and Wildlife Service is going to approve this rule and make it final and will have the excitement of having a species that's no longer endangered and has moved to to threatened status. Um, In terms of when that will happen, they tell us that probably a year from when they release that proposed rule. So we're we're targeting November as we we would sure like it to be sooner, but everything that we've heard tells us November is most likely. Oftentimes when I explain that, I, I get comments, well, what does that mean? Does that mean people can fish for them or what, what does that do for us? And there isn't a huge change in terms of the regulations surrounding them, except for this. I don't want to get too technical and get into legalese of the Endangered Species Act, but there's something called a 4D rule. And that can be applied to threatened species and suddenly gives us so much more flexibility in the way we manage June sucker, the way we do projects in order to recover them. Um, A good example for this, say we wanted to produce a mounted June sucker um, in order to display or use as an education tool so people can see what a June sucker looks like. Well, to do that for an endangered species requires a nightmare amount of regulations and form filling out and all these hoops to jump through where it's almost impossible. Once we have a 4D rule for a threatened species, it's very simple. Um, We can cover educational use in that 4D rule and easily go out and and get the educational materials that that we would need. Mike, I know that uh, a lot of people, when they think of June sucker, their mind immediately goes to carp removal. Help us understand how carp removal pertains to the June sucker efforts. Okay, well, to go back, and it's helpful to go back and look at it from the start so people understand how we arrived at the decision to start removing common carp from Utah Lake. Um, Once the June sucker program got founded and established, um, a lot of blame for the state of June sucker was placed on sport fish in Utah Lake, um, primarily the walleye. And so one of the first studies that the program commissioned was looking at all of the non-native species in Utah Lake and trying to identify which one posed the greatest risk to June sucker recovery and survival. And interestingly enough, through a couple of years of research, we found that it wasn't the walleye, it wasn't white bass, it wasn't catfish, it was actually common carp 
because of the way they feed and how they remove um, submerged vegetation from the lake. So Utah Lake historically had beds of vegetation. I, for lack of a better term, people probably would re refer to it as moss or seaweed, but kind of this bed of underwater grass out in the lake that little June sucker could hide in in order to escape from predators. Um, we know that June sucker evolved with, with predatory fish, that they are capable of dealing with predation, and but they need a refuge from, from those predators. And it's those beds of vegetation that provides that, that refuge. And so the way a common carp feeds is they get down in the mud, they kind of root through everything. And if there's vegetation there, they're going to rip it out. Well, the population of common carp in Utah Lake had gotten so dense and so large that they had basically wiped out all of those um, vegetation beds in the lake. And so we lacked the cover for little fish to hide from predators. And the science then proceeded and, you know, the idea of dealing with common carp in a lake that big is very daunting. But through, see, it probably would have been, see, 04 is when that first study finished up. And then it was 07 when we finished the studies on how do you control um, carp in Utah Lake. And at the time, the thought was, well, we're probably going to have to section the lake off and remove things systematically. It, it was quite daunting, but the, the research said, if you can remove enough fish, and that's the big caveat, if you can remove enough, enough carp, you can get on top of this population and drive it down and reduce it. Um, it never said that extinction of or elimination of carp from Utah Lake was possible, but it did say we could reduce the population enough in order to see that vegetation return to the lake. And so that was the precursor that sent us on the mission to try to remove carp from Utah Lake. We issued our first contract for carp removal in February of 2010. There were some pilot projects that happened before that but it was actually February of 2010 when we had all the permitting in place, all the funding in place, that where we were able to go ahead and contract with commercial fishing companies. The company that got that first contract was Loy Fisheries, and they began removing carp um, in, in just astronomical numbers coming out of Utah Lake. And it was actually a few years before we even started to see an effect in terms of the population changing out there. And the goal was to reduce the population by 75%. That's what the science indicated was necessary in order to see aquatic vegetation come back into the lake. And we, we, we reached that, that goal back in, would have been 2017 is when we hit that 75% reduction. And as a result, we started to see um, some vegetation come back in a couple locations around the lake. Unfortunately, the lake dropped so much that year that every place we started to see that vegetation in June of 2017 was all dry by uh, August of that year. We've done a lot of work on carp, and I, I think the reason it gets so associated with um, June sucker is because it's kind of our biggest 
um, public um, project. And we, we get more coverage for carp removal than any other project that we do. And maybe simply because it, it, it's so crazy to people that you would try to remove so many fish out of the lake. And there, there's been so much research associated with this from what do you do with the carp? Um, can you generate funding, make a product to sell? Um, we, we've had requests from all over the world. Um, most of the time, the people that are calling wanting carp from Utah Lake it's like they think we have a warehouse full of carp and they can just come and pick them up and it, 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 it's it's frustrating because you'll have a guy who will call up and say well we'll, we'll take two hundred thousand pounds and you're like okay well we average removing about twenty thousand pounds per day fished we're not able to fish every day and then the idea of you know, these interruptions in in the chain of, of supply based on weather or a number of different factors it it's very difficult to iron everything out to where everything makes sense for these people that want to use the carp and so that that's been frustrating early on our vision was yeah we're going to take these carp we're going to turn them into a product um, the things that generated the most interest were fertilizer or fish meal um, and nothing ever really came together and primarily because we lacked a production facility locally that could take the fish and turn them that turn them into something usable every every product involved shipping them somewhere or building some large facility here that would have ate up all of our funding um, and really gave us no guarantees if we could have made progress so that that's kind of where we stand but I probably glossed over the most exciting part in that we were able to reach our goals, which when we started, we definitely took kind of a leap of faith in that we would be able to do this. And, you know, those of us that were skeptical about it at the time kind of had the opinion of, okay, we'll try this. The science says it's possible. Um, if it doesn't work, we'll go back to the drawing board and, and figure something else out. But it, it worked and we, we were able to reduce the carp population out there. We, we see vegetation coming back in that said, and this everybody's who's listening probably following along of, well, what if you stop? And that that's the, the big kicker there of if we stop, um, the science tells us that the carp population will rebound and will recover back to the point where it was when we started in 2010, probably in the space of about five years. That said, our science also shows that if we continue with a maintenance removal, removing smaller amounts than what we initially were doing, we can hold this population in check and, and keep the, the numbers low out there. And so that's, that's where we stand. We've kind of been in this maintenance removal mode now for the past two and a half years and are able to keep up with that. There's, there are days when our commercial fishermen go out there and they struggle to catch carp just because the population is so low that they're, they, they struggle to find them. It's, it's a big lake, and when the lake is full, there's, there's a lot of places for carp to be, especially when you're dealing with a population that's so much smaller than it was when we started. Sure, and that makes total sense. I mean, it's kind of one of those, like you said, there's not as many fish which you're happy about, but at the same right. time has got to be difficult to address. 
So, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people listening are, are probably wondering, you know, what about the future of removal? You know, where where are you looking towards now? So, you, we, knew, we knew going into this that eradication of carp in Utah Lake probably wasn't feasible. Um, and so, we were fully prepared that once we re- met our removal goals to shift into this maintenance mode. And so, that's what we've done. And our plan right now is to continue removing at these lower levels to keep a reduced population of carp in check out in Utah Lake. That said, back in the fall, we formed what we were calling at the time the Utah Lake Carp Task Force. And we have researchers from Utah State University, some biologists from the Division of Wildlife Resources, um, a representative from the Fish and Wildlife Service, and then our commercial fishing company representatives that have also helped out on that task force and we've set forth with some research goals so there's some crazy things out there in terms of controlling non-native fish and then there's some not so crazy things that that kind of make sense that said someone has to research these things out so one of the techniques that's out there and has been used in australia is introducing what's called the koi herpes virus and the science says right now that it it will focus on carp will target carp and can wipe out a carp population well there you probably don't want to go introducing viruses into natural systems without knowing full well what the side effects might be Um, is there potential for it to kill other fish is there potential for it to kill you know maybe get into birds, it, it could be very crazy. We formed this task force to kind of vet some of these ideas and decide which ones would be worth researching further and trying to develop a plan to implement them on Utah Lake. We don't have any plans whatsoever of introducing koi herpes virus on Utah Lake. I want to make that clear that that's not... <laughs> That's not one of the ideas that we're pursuing. There are some ideas that are worth pursuing. There's some research that's been done by um, primarily the state of Idaho that started it, but the idea of developing a carp that only when it has um, offspring, that all the offspring are males. It's called daughterless carp, meaning that if a carp, this carp reproduces, it only produces males. And so the idea is that you would swamp your current population with these daughterless carp, and then over a series of a couple of generations, and when you're talking about carp, uh, generation time is probably close to about five years. And so within a 10-year period, your population becomes all males, and then eventually when those all those males die out, your population then goes to extinction, um, which would be great. Um, That said, there's a lot of unanswered questions. Okay, how many daughterless carp would we actually have to raise? And do we really want to be introducing carp back into Utah Lake after we've spent the last 10 years removing them? So there's a lot of caveats, a, a lot of Um, questions that come up with every single one of these different ideas and we want to make sure we're doing sound science that whatever solution we come up with isn't going to lead to a bigger problem Um, but we started this task force just because 
we see so many different ideas presented. We wanted to do due diligence and not miss out on an opportunity if there is something legitimate out there that could help us push this um, removal effort to the next phase. Well, Mike, thanks so much for explaining CARP. I know that's a, a main issue and concern that people are aware of at the lake. Um, although I know it's not the only project that uh, the June Secker program works on. I know that one that we've heard about recently from uh, your group is Northern Pike uh, as an issue at Utah Lake, too. So can you can you elaborate on that more for us? Yeah, I, I certainly can. Northern Pike are um, kind of the result of some bad choices by... I, some very selfish people. So Northern Pike had never been introduced into Utah Lake. Um, that said, there are a few places in Utah where they do have them. Yuba Reservoir is one of those places, and then there's a couple others. Um, but back in 2010, we found a Northern Pike out in Utah Lake, and it was a sizable individual. It was the first one we had documented, and it was immediately very concerning. Um, for those that don't know, Northern Pike can achieve lengths between 36 and 42, maybe even up to 44 inches. And they're very long. They are a very effective fish eater. They have kind of a long snout with a mouth that is just full of teeth. They, I, Describing them, I feel like I'm describing a monster, but they they are a legitimate <laughs> species that um, has the capability of being very dis destructive. In Yuba Reservoir, they have impacted their prey base so much that it's this very cyclical boom-bust cycle where they will eat all the perch and the population of northern pike will explode and then there's no fish left for them to eat and it will crash and it really has wreaked havoc on the fishery down there to where it, it's a struggle to manage a legitimate recreational fishery in Yuba Reservoir. And having these fish show up in Utah Lake, we um, believe that they came from an angler who decided that northern pike would be a good species to have in Utah Lake. So selfishly, that individual went out and released um, pike into the lake. And based on the numbers that we caught subsequent to that first one would indicate this probably was done multiple times. And little did that person know that they had the potential of causing some very severe damage to Utah Lake, to June sucker recovery efforts, um, really just to the recreational fishery that exists in Utah Lake. And when we found that pike in 2010, I was scared. I was very worried that the pike population would explode within the next five years and we would lose all the progress we had made with June sucker and the fishery would change completely and it it was it was terrifying um, as a biologist sure. to, to think about the the negative potential um, immediately we we began removing as many as we could find um, we struggled to find them though um, we found the best way to catch them was in the very early spring late winter using um, a rod um, a fishing rod going out and basically being an angler trying to catch them we we struggled to find them in nets um, during this time we're removing millions of pounds of common carp from the lake yet we're, we're not finding northern pike out there yet 
every spring we can go out and find them trying to reproduce and even finding evidence that they there was successful reproduction. Um, we funded research for Utah State University looking at northern pike and how we could control them and trying to model their population growth and again the very terrifying results just in terms of the number of fish that these pike could end up consuming in the lake um, that said here we are 10 years later from when we found the the first individual and we we haven't seen this population explosion um, we still can find pike um, pretty regularly each as the winter ends each year and ice off happens out in the lake um, that's the time that we're able to find them and then we'll have a few individuals show up here and there throughout the course of the year um, and so in a way you wonder maybe maybe things are going to be okay maybe this population isn't going to take off and then you look around at other systems and they they will tell you well there was a lag before things erupted and so we're still very much concerned about northern pike as is the the state division of wildlife resources they've issued a must kill regulation so if you are out there fishing and catching northern pike the law is that that fish can't be returned to the water um, that you have to kill it and either throw it away or eat it um, but the point is is that northern pike once caught can't go back into utah lake um, we actually would appreciate it if people would turn those into the division of wildlife resources they accept them down at the springville office and then we we use them for research purposes to try to learn a little bit more um, this spring we started started a program where we are um, putting telemetry tags in some of the pike that we find hoping to try to track them and get an idea of where they're going in utah lake um, so we're, we're kind of in this pattern of there's not enough pike out there for us to effectively encounter them and remove them at the same time we hate for them to get to that level and so we're we're, we're kind of in this this sad situation of not having the tools to address them yet that then knowing that if they get so numerous that our tools work the damage may have already been done so it, it's, it's a state of where we're trying to learn as much as we can and trying to come up with a plan to target them better so that they never explode in Utah Lake and that and we, we never have the negative effects associated with them. And hey Mike, those uh, tags that you mentioned, the telemetry tags, uh, I know we've heard about this as well at the commission that uh, obviously those are for tracking. And so I'm assuming there's been a slight change to pike being caught that you want those particular ones returned to the lake. Isn't that right? That, that is correct, Sam. So each one of the, so the telemetry tags are actually implanted surgically and you, you wouldn't see them if you were holding a pike that had one. So what the biologists are doing is they're putting what's called an anchor tag next to the dorsal fin on the, on the pike. And so it will be this thin, um, probably about two inch long um, red piece of plastic that's coming out of the fish next to the dorsal fin. And so the message has been if a fisherman catches one of these pike and sees that red anchor tag next to the dorsal fin just on the back, we would ask them to go ahead and, and release that pike back into Utah Lake. 
Gotcha. Okay. So all pike come out, kill them, unless they got a little red tag on them. Those ones need to go back in to try and help you guys kill them eventually. <laughs> right. Right. And the the reality is that so few pike are caught in Utah Lake. Um, a couple of years ago, we did a big media blitz and asked anglers to turn in as many as they caught, and I think we got up to twenty two. And so it, okay. it's, it's not a ton. Um, there is the chance that they catch one. It might be one of these tagged fish, but without the big media push and it, there's less than 10 pike caught annually on Utah Lake that we know about. I, I, I should put that caveat in there that it is possible that there are more being caught than we know about, but sure. Um, but it's great that you guys are focusing on those efforts so that it doesn't become an issue like carp did. Right, exactly. And that's our goal is to try to do something early. It's just that in the world of fisheries management, every um, management tool for eradicating invasive fish is based on a huge population. And we still have a lot to learn um, about why or how northern pike behave in Utah Lake and what their potential are. And I, I wish we were in an eradication program, but we're really still in that learning phase. And, and I guess that's probably a good point that we should always be trying to learn more so that we can always improve our efforts out there. The last effort that I know, I know you guys work on a lot of projects. The last one I was hoping you'd hit on for us was the uh, Parole River Delta restoration project. Yeah, um, that Delta restoration project, again, we, we do things big when it comes to Utah Lake. And I don't know of any other Delta restoration project that's taken place in the Intermountain West as large as what we're going to be doing down on the Provo River. Um, the reason this is so important is, in my mind, this is the project that has the potential of recovering June sucker because it provides the habitat for them to survive on their own and eliminate the need for us to continually stock June sucker out of our hatcheries. So just to sum up quickly, the majority of adult June sucker spawn in the Provo River. And we a typical spawning run now can be thousands of fish up there, and they produce millions and millions of larval June suckers that all float down the Provo River. But under current conditions, very few of those fish actually even make it back to Utah Lake because of the nature of the current Provo River Channel. It's been channelized so many times and dredged so many times that it's so deep, it, it's cold, it basically becomes this bathtub where it connects to Utah Lake that's a gauntlet of predators and very poor habitat for little fish to be able to survive. And so what the Delta will do, it will eliminate that, that bathtub habitat by sending a portion of the river to the north into this transition zone between Utah Lake and the Provo River that will be well vegetated, there'll be shallow water where temperatures can be a little warmer, there'll be deeper water where fish can escape predators. Um, it will be a nice environment for a tiny fish to have a chance of surviving. We did something similar over on Hobble Creek in 2008 and that project has been successful in being able to produce wild June sucker, which is the missing link when it comes to recovery of this species. And we, we have very few fish, 
it's getting better, but we have hundreds of fish that spawn in Hobble Creek, whereas we have thousands that spawn in the Provo River. And to give all of those larval fish a chance by creating the Provo River Delta, we, we have the potential to recover this species and have it removed completely from the endangered species list. Um, so it, it's great to see this project getting started. It's going to be a long process, but in the end, we're going to be left with something that is going to mean a lot for June sucker recovery and also mean a great deal for recreational use down on, on Utah Lake. We're going to take over 300 acres that are currently off limits and have been off limits to public use for, for decades um, and open that back up. So when construction is done, I want to emphasize that people can't go down there and, and recreate while construction is happening. But when construction is over, this is going to be another access point to Utah Lake and a pretty cool access point with the recreational amenities that we're going to add in in the form of trails, a viewing tower, non-motorized boat launch. Um, it'll be an opportunity for people to really connect with the lake. To learn more about the Pearl River Delta Project, make sure to tune into Episode 7 on the Utah Lake Facts, Fiction, and Fun podcast. We had Melissa Stamp with the Mitigation Commission who is working on this specific project, and she shares all kinds of details about timeline and everything else. Um, so there's definitely more details in that episode. Um, you can also check out their website online which is ProvoRiverDelta.us, and we'll have that link on our podcast website as well. So, Sam, our, our biggest expense when it comes to June sucker recovery is acquiring water for in-stream flows. So a big part of the program is putting water down the Provo River and also in Hobble Creek to ensure that June sucker have water to spawn in, that adults aren't getting stranded when they come up there to spawn. Um, and then trying to support larval fish throughout the summer. Um, because of those acquisitions of, of water, we're able to keep the Provo River flowing all year round. Whereas just 15 years ago, once you reach mid-July, the river would go dry um, in the majority of years. Um, with that water and that, that large expense in order to supply that, we really feel like we're going to get our biggest bang for our, our buck with the Provo River Delta. Um, once we have that good habitat out there, we can really maximize the benefit of that water as it flows through the Delta and supports all of those larval fish. Um, in the end, you know, I, I started the conversation talking about water being the reason why we, we started the June Sucker Recovery Program, and it really comes full circle when you talk about the benefits behind having a Provo River that functions and flows, having Cobble Creek that now is able to support populations of wild fish, um, including trout, for people to go out and, and fish for them. It, it becomes a recreational amenity that is going to be a huge benefit and really has been a huge benefit for Utah Valley now for a number of years to have functioning river systems. And we're happy to have it tie back into that delta and tie back into Utah Lake to try to improve the ecosystem and extend those benefits out even further to both people and animals that, that rely on this environment. If people are interested in learning more about our program and, and the numerous projects we have going on, I would direct them to go to 
junesuckerrecovery.org. Um, that's our our website out there. It's actually going through a phase of uh, rehabilitation. Now, unlike the Delta, we're hoping to restore our website and make it a, a better place for people to come and get more information. Um, one thing we'll be rolling out here in the coming months is more of a presence on social media through Instagram, and you'll be able to find those details also on our website. That's junesuckerrecovery.org. Mike, thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate you explaining things, and uh, we appreciate all the work you're doing for the June Sucker and for the Utah Lake as a whole. I know the commission values the partnership of the June Sucker Recovery Program and its various stakeholders. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. You've been listening to Utah Lake, facts, fiction, and fun. For more information and resources, visit utahlakecommission.org forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening.